What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. The American culture has transformed how we view leisure activities. In fact, we have, in a sense, sometimes we idolize what we call vacationing. In fact, we emphasize vacation so much that we nickel and dime every penny that we receive from our job so that we can live as kings and queens for one week or two weeks out of the year. Did you know the average American family spends about $5,000 on one vacation a year? Did you know it, it normally costs a, around eleven to $1,200 per person, per family on a vacation here? That is our concept of vacationing. I found it interesting that the, 10, the top 10 most bucket list dream vacations is, number one, to go see the Northern Lights in Iceland. Be a pretty cool vacation. Number two, sleep in an overwater bungalow in Bora Bora. If you don't know what that is, it's kind of like sleeping on top of the ocean. <laughs> Number three, admire the sunset over the Santorini. Number four, take the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. Number five, ex- explore the Galapagos Islands. Number six, visit Italy's Amalfi Coast. Number seven, photograph the Big Five on safari at Kruger National Park, South Africa. Number eight, take the ultimate road trip on Route 66. Finally, we get something in America. Number nine, set foot on Antarctica. That doesn't sound like a vacation to me. Uh, Number 10, ride the Trans-Siberian Railway. Now, hey, maybe this may not be on your top 10 vacation list, but it is on uh, a special website online. As we think about vacationing in the American mind, in our mind, it's almost as if we can develop this type of watopia in our own life so that we can set aside our mind from all that's going on in our world and our lives and our job and everything so that we can just relax and focus on me, myself, and I. Kind of have our own country, our own island and own peace for just a week or two. Now, in similar fashion, our world has been striving for peace, has been striving for a Watopia-like country and world. But the only way we're ever going to get that type of Watopia is when Jesus returns and establishes what our scripture calls today the thousand-year reign of Christ. So today, I want to just label my thoughts with three words, the millennial kingdom, the millennial kingdom. 
In fact, the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 20, we now have come up to the point in, in future history that is that the tribulation, the seven years of all hell breaking out on earth is now over. Jesus has come. He's defeated the Antichrist and the false prophet and their armies. And now he's about to take Satan and they're going to cast him into the bottomless pit or the abyss for 1,000 years. And then he's going to establish his kingdom here on this earth and reign for 1,000 years. And then after the effect. Satan will be loosed, and for some reason, I don't really know why, but, but I have some speculation about it that we'll talk about a little later. And then Satan will be loosed one final time to lead a revolt against God, and then God will rain down fire from heaven and destroy all of that and cast Satan once and for all into the lake of fire. And that's what these 10 verses are about. But as you begin to study these 10 verses, you probably have come to the realization that there are people who are not on the same page when it comes to these 10 verses. In fact, there's three major views that we can come in and, and interpret this passage. You have what is called the amillennial view, that is, no millennium. That is, when they come in these verses here, and in fact, if my counting is correct, Scripture records six times here with the number specifically a thousand years mentioned. They would come here and they would view this as all figurative language and that we are in a sense living in a millennial type right now and that, that this kingdom of God is in the here and now and, and this is never going to take place. All figurative. And Satan is already bound. I would just like to say that if Satan was bound now, he has one long chain. And I'd hate to see what Satan can do if he's not bound in the future. So I think that we can rule this out, although there are some really good, solid believers who would hold to that view. The least popular view today is what we would call the post-millennial view. And this would view the fact that, that it's going to be like a, Christian, a Christianizing the world. That there's going to be a sweeping world revival and that all the world, all of humanity is going to, in a sense, come to faith and that's going to usher us into the coming of Christ at the very end. Well, what I see in Scripture is that the world is waxing worse and worse. Humanity's heart is getting more depraved, if you will, or more sinful, more contaminated by flesh. And that we will not see that type of Christianization, Christianizing the world in the age to come. Then we would come to what we would view premillennialism. That is, Christ is going to return before the millennium and establish his millennium for 1,000 years and rule and reign. Now, all that said, one commentator summarized this chapter with these words. In a series of incredible events, Satan is bound for 1,000 years while Christ, the bride, and the tribulation martyrs rule on the earth. Then, in one last great surprise, Satan is loosed after the millennium and makes one final attempt to overthrow the work of God. This time, he is cast into the lake of fire. Then the lost of all time stand before God, or Christ, at the great white throne judgment there at the end, verses 11 through 15. We'll get to that next time. As we come to this chapter today, a lot of it is all about the future, to be quite frank with you. But what, what is a thought that we could walk away with today for some sense of application? Well, here's the thought. That if you walk away with anything, here is the key thought for today's message. Jesus Christ will come again to establish his kingdom on earth. Jesus Christ will come again to establish his kingdom on earth. 
And our job as a child of God, as Christians, is to go into the world and to tell people about the future coming of Christ. How, yes, he's going to come and bring judgment to this world, but he's going to establish peace for 1,000 years. And he's going to reign, and he's going to be our king, our president, if you will, our emperor, our Pharaoh, and rule on this earth. And we will rule with him. Now, as we're going to walk through this chapter today, I really have three questions that I'm wanting to seek and answer and ask today. The first question is this. What will happen right before Christ's kingdom? Well, let's look at verses 1 through 3. The first thought today of three thoughts is this. Before Christ establishes his kingdom, Satan will be bound. Before Christ establishes his kingdom, Satan will be bound. Now, remember, as we've been studying the book of Revelation, there's a phrase that is repeated throughout the English Bible, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. And here we see that phrase again. John says, and I saw. And here in this moment, it is a transitional moment from the tribulation period now into a new period called the millennium. And so John, as he's looking into this vision of the future, he sees an angel come down from heaven, having some keys, having a chain. And the key is not to unlock the door of your house or the door of some mansion in Hollywood Hills or Beverly Hills, but it is a key to the bottomless pit or what we call the abyss. And then a chain in his hand. So as we think about verse number one, we will witness in, in, in the future, in history that's going to last, that's going to take place in the future, we will witness the angel descend from heaven with chains and the key to the bottomless pit. We will witness it all take place in the future. But now we have a recorded written record of how it's going to take place. In verse number two, the Bible speaks about Satan. Of course, the Bible refers to him as many different names. And in this passage, it, it, the Bible calls him the dragon, calls him the serpent, calls him the devil, and calls him Satan. And the Bible says that this angel who comes down out of heaven with the key and the chain, he is going to come and lay hold upon this dragon or Satan himself. And there the Bible says that he will be bound for a thousand years. Now, this term bound it, it literally gives the idea of binding somebody up and putting them in bonds. Or in a sense, putting him in handcuffs. And so that is literally what's going to take place for 1,000 years. He is going to be bound in handcuffs and chains to no longer be able to deceive the nations. Now, as we think about verse number two, here's this thought. That when in, in the future, we will witness this angel seize the dragon and bound him, capture him. For 1,000 years. Then in verse number 3, let's look at verse 3. In verse number 3, the Bible says that, that not only is he going to be bound, but he's going to be thrown or cast. This word cast, it gives the idea that you would take a football or a baseball and you would try to throw it as far as you can and as hard as you can. And here the Bible says that this angel is going to cast Satan into the bottomless pit or called the abyss. And he will be shut up. The Bible says that a seal is going to be set upon him. Now remember, we've talked about seals 
throughout the book of Revelation, there was a seal that the, that the Antichrist was trying to put on people. That is his mark in the right hand or in the forehead. And then God placed a seal upon those 144,000 witnesses. And God has placed a seal upon you and upon me called his Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit lives in us. But here a seal is going to be upon Satan. In other words, this seal gives the idea of he is going to be wrapped up in a package box and there he's not coming out for 1,000 years. Then the Bible says that he will deceive the nations no more. Now deception is Satan's tactic. That is his tool to lead people away from God. The word deceive, all it means is gives this idea of seduce somebody to go astray from the plans of God and the word of God. And so he will no longer be able to do that. So just imagine for yourselves, 1,000 years without the influence of Satan. And by the way, I do think it's also safe to conclude and to assume that all the demonic spirits will be in that place with him during those years. Now, we'll figure all that out in the future, but for sure we know Scripture says Satan will, and it makes most sense that if all the demons of the world are in that cage, if you will, too. But imagine what the human mind is capable of without the influence of Satan's temptations and snares. Imagine what the human mind is able to focus on instead of being distracted upon the devices that Satan is throwing at us in our life. Imagine what we've been able to accomplish today in our world. I mean, we're able to go into outer space and go on the moon. And that's even with Satan's temptation. We're able to, to take a computer that used to be like the size of this facility. That's an exaggeration, of course. But now it's, it's wrapped down into just a little small tiny chip that you can put in the palm of your hand. Imagine what we will be capable of as humanity without Satan nagging in our minds. But here it says that for these 1,000 years, all this will be done. And for some reason, in God's own purposes, we'll talk about a little later, the Bible says here that after all this, he must be loosed one little season again. So as you think about verse 3, we will witness the angel cast the dragon into the bottomless pit to deceive the nations no more for 1,000 years. So the first thought today is right before Christ establishes his kingdom, Satan will be bound. That will be a great day. And I can just imagine, just as we saw the hallelujahs of chapter 19, I can just imagine these people who survived through the tribulation period will, will be rejoicing and worshiping God because of what God is allowing this angel to come down and do. So we see a section here is these first three verses, and I saw. But then again in verse number four, the Bible says, and I saw another time. And so that brings us to a second transition here. In verses four through six, I, I want you to think about this second thought today. What will happen during Christ's kingdom? So we've asked the first question, what will happen right before Christ's kingdom? And we know Satan will be bound. But what will happen during Christ's kingdom? Well, time doesn't allow me to really fully dive into all this today, but just here's the thought I want to relate to you from our text. During Christ's kingdom, the saints will reign. During Christ's kingdom, the saints will reign. That's what we see in verse 4, 5, and 6. In fact, a lot of people are at debate about what is the future of believers? That is the church. What, what is our future? Well, the future is to be raptured, then to return with Christ, 
and then to reign with Christ. Now, we might debate about the timing of some of those events, but we can all agree the rapture will take place, the return will take place, and we'll reign with Christ. In fact, Daniel spoke about this, about how believers will reign with Christ in the millennium in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 3, how we will reign with him in his kingdom. Look at verse number 4. Verse number 4 says that, that John, in this vision, he sees the angel come down, bind Satan, and cast him into the bottomless pit. And now John says that as he's looking out, he sees these thrones. And the ones who sat upon those thrones. And the Bible says that power of judgment was given to them. And this corresponds what Paul talked about in Corinthians. How we will not only rule and reign, but we will judge along with Christ. And then the Bible says that, that John sees the souls of those who were martyred for Christ in the tribulation. Those who are witnesses of Christ. So, so look at verse number four. This word witness, it gives us idea of being Someone who testifies for Christ. Witnesses. That's what we are called to be. That is somebody who bears record and testimony of the goodness of God in your life. My question for us all today is this. Who have we been a witness to this year for the cause of Christ? Who have we told Christ to? Who have we... Shared the gospel with in this year. I'm not talking about back in 1995 or, or in 2005. I'm talking about this year in 2021. Who have we been a witness to about Jesus Christ? You see, you may never be called into the courtroom to be a witness on the witness stand. You may never be, be that. You may never be called to go in and do that. But I will say this, that every single day of your life, God is calling you to the witness stand to share the good news of Christ to the people that you know in your life and to the strangers that you meet and everybody that you come in contact with. In fact, the heartbeat of God is missions. And the heartbeat of the church today should be the Great Commission and telling everybody that we know and everybody we don't know about Jesus Christ and the good news found in the gospel. In fact, Jesus came to die on the cross and these people in the tribulation period are going to be so strong of witnesses that they're going to be willingly beheaded for the cause of Christ in the tribulation period. Today, we find it hard to just tell somebody about Jesus with literally no consequences. My friends, let's tell people about Jesus. Let's be a witness of not just him and his death and his resurrection, but let's be a witness for the word of God so that when we get into conversations with people and they say, well, hey, what do you believe? Well, we can point back to the final authority of not the biology textbook from the university, but from God's textbook called scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, we can literally just say that, hey, this is our final authority and God gave us how it all began back in the beginning and tells us how it's all gonna end right here in Revelation. But they were beheaded for the witness and the word of God and for their refusal to worship all these false images. So we can be a witness of not just Christ and the gospel, but his word, but also a witness that we're not going to be sidetracked about worshiping all these crazy ideologies and philosophies and religious beliefs today. There's so many religions out there. And I believe that those religions are just tools that Satan is using right now in this age to deceive the world which is leading up to his falsified one world religion to deceive all the nations. But praise God, we don't have to receive that. And these martyred saints here did not receive his image or worship his image. 
and did not receive his mark in their hands or in their foreheads. And they also, we believe, will live and reign with Christ in the future. So think about this. We will reign with Christ after the tribulation. Now, there's a little bit of debate about some of this stuff, but, but it seems reasonable that even the Old Testament saints who have already gone on to be with the Lord and New Testament saints that have already gone on to be with the Lord or have been raptured are the martyred saints in a tribulation period. It seems fair to say that all of those saints will be ruling and reigning with Christ in the millennium. But then look at verse number five. In fact, verse number five, the first sentence of verse number five is kind of like a commentary about another time. And the last part of verse number five is referring back to verse number four. But it speaks about how the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And it says this, it says this is the first resurrection. Now remember the words of Christ in the gospels where he said there will be a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. We believe in what's called two resurrections the first resurrection and the second resurrection. And here the Bible speaks about the first resurrection. And of course, the first resurrection has, in a sense, phases. Those who are dead in Christ and rise at the rapture, that's a phase of the first resurrection. And then those that are dead in the tribulation day, in a sense, those who die and martyr, they will be resurrected. And so we see that there's a little bit of phase, different phases in this first resurrection. But, but this is speaking about the first resurrection back in verse 4. And the second resurrection is a resurrection of the unjust to death, eternal. And the first resurrection is a resurrection to life, eternal, if you will. And so, well, first of all, we see the resurrection of Christ back in the book of 1 Corinthians and the four Gospels. We see that is, is a typifying effect of the future resurrections of the just and the unjust. How Jesus defeated death on the grave by rising from the dead. And we know that the saints in the days to come will rise victoriously over death and the grave. Then we think about the church in 1 Corinthians 15 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, how the church will be resurrected. And then the Old Testament and, and tribulation saints, Isaiah and Daniel chapter 12, Isaiah 26, speak about the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints right here. So we see all of that is involved in what we would call the first resurrection. But now the, the second resurrection comes down to verses 11 through 15. That is, the resurrection of those who are going to stand before God at the great right throne judgment. So we will witness all believers experience the first resurrection. We can praise God for that. We will reign with Christ after the great tribulation. But now check this out. As we read verse number six, it speaks about blessed and holy is he that has part in this first resurrection. I thought about this. We will have power over death's condemnation. Yes, I know that unless we're raptured out of here, I most likely, the chances are, I will walk through the doorway of death. I will experience the pain and the agony and the suffering of, of what we call death. And, and most likely, so will you. But, but the good news is, is that when Jesus came, he experienced that same agony on the cross. And in his resurrection, we have the great hope that we will rise again. And that our bodies, our deceased corpses, will come out of that grave and receive a new body. And the Bible says, blessed and holy. So you are blessed and you are holy if you know Christ because you will partake in the first resurrection. Verse six goes on to say, on such the second death hath no power. So the idea is this. If you're born twice, you'll die once and live forever. 
But if you're born once and die twice, you'll die forever. That's the comparison we're seeing here in this passage. The Bible says that, that this second death, it's mentioned later on in Revelation 20, has no power over us. It says, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with them a thousand years. During Christ's kingdom, the saints will reign. During, before Christ's kingdom, Satan will be bound. But now let's think about this third question. What will happen after Christ's kingdom? When we get into verses 7 through 10, we see that this is kind of the very last final phase of the millennium. And Satan will be loosed for one final time. And the question that I have in my mind and that we're all thinking is, why is God going to allow Satan to be loosed one final time? Well, as Brother Joel talked about in our Sunday school hour, God allows us to go through things to prove us. And I believe that what God is going to do, even though that, that Jesus is going to rule and reign, even though that Jesus himself will be physical and literal on his throne on the earth, there will be people who are just going to be going through the motions and have not become what we call born again or experienced the new birth. I like how Charles Ryrie put it. He said it this way. The millennium will prove that a perfect earthly environment and even universal knowledge of the Lord will not change man's heart. The only way man's heart can be truly changed is when the Holy Spirit of God regenerates that heart. And so, of course, we believe who's going to populate this kingdom. Well, the people who survive through the tribulation period will, including the 144,000 and many others who will survive through. The vast majority of them will most likely be Christians or believers in a sense. And there may be a chance that people will just refuse the mark and refuse to worship the beast because they don't want to and it will be not driven by spiritual reasons of the gospel. But most likely, nearly all the people going into the kingdom will be born again. So it will be their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren, etc. Future generations that might follow through after Satan. Look at verses 7 and 8. We will witness Satan being loosed from his prison. Verse 7, it says that Satan is going to be loosed out of his prisons and those 1,000 years are expired. So as we come to this chapter, you've seen the word 1,000 years mentioned multiple times. Either it is 1,000 years or it's not. I mean, it's either or. And so it seems reasonable, and the most way to view this in my mind is that this is an actual, literal 1,000 years. And so Satan's going to be thrown out of prison, if you will. And then verse 8, it speaks about this war. The Bible says that Satan's going to go around, and he's going to deceive the nations for one final thrust. One final time, he's going to come in and pour out all of his energies and efforts from the north and the south and the east and the west. That's all it means by the four quarters of the earth. And, and it mentions Gog and Magog. And if you know anything about Bible prophecy, you know that back in Ezekiel, those names are mentioned before. I believe that, that it's a war that's going to be similar to the wars mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, not the specific war here. This is one final battle at the end of the millennium. And the Bible says that, that Satan is going to gather a large people together to try to defeat 
the body of God and Christ. In other words, believers in Christ himself. The Bible says the number of this army is as the sand of the sea. In other words, it's an innumerable army that John couldn't put a number on. It's so many there he couldn't count. So we will witness Satan being loosed from his prison. And then in verse number nine, here's the encouragement that we can believe today. And verses nine and 10 really gets us, really gets me uh, charged up because we know that Satan's days are numbered. And that one day he's going to be thrown in to the lake of fire. But check out verse number nine. We will witness God sending down fire from heaven. Just like, the, just like Elijah cried out to God and God sent fire down from heaven. We see here in this moment, Jesus is going to say the words. He's going to snap his fingers, if you will. And in one instance, fire is going to be thrown down from heaven, just like the days of Elijah, and destroy this army. The Bible literally uses the terminology, devour them. It says in verse number nine, look at this verse. It says, and they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed, in other words, they surrounded the camp of saints about. So all the believers on the world that day, they surrounded them and the beloved city. Most likely that's a reference to Jerusalem. And the Bible says that fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. In verse number nine, we see this word devoured. And it gives this idea of to eat down to devour all the food up. Imagine, have you ever been like famished? Like you've been so hungry, you thought you could eat the entire cupboard in your house? Well, it gives this idea that just as we would go to the store and we get our groceries and we would cook our dinner and, or we go to the restaurant and we would just eat it all up and there's nothing left over, that when God sends down this fire from heaven, it's gonna consume all of those who followed suit after Satan's final last rebellion. And destroy them all. And then verse number 10. The Bible says. That Satan is finally going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So we will not just witness Satan being loosed out of his prison. And God sending down fire from heaven. But we will also witness Satan being sentenced. To damnation. Now I will say this. That I know in my mind, Scripture teaches us, not everybody will come to faith in Christ. And it sorrows my heart and grieves my soul that lost people will go to the lake of fire for all eternity. But I will say this, that I am not grieved over the fact that the arch enemy of God, Satan, will be thrown into the lake of fire. It says here that the devil that deceived them... That is, not just them in that time period, in the future, but he's the one who's, who's lurking around and seeking those whom he may devour in our age today. And the Bible says that this one was cast and thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet were already currently residing. And the Bible says that he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The word torment, it literally means to torture somebody to great toil and pain that their whole body is vexed and annoyed to the point of breaking. And as we think about this concept of the lake of fire, it will transition us into the great white throne judgment and it reminds us that Satan and the false prophet and the Antichrist or the beast and all the demons will not be the only ones in this place in eternity. People we know who don't know Christ will experience 
similar fashions of torment. The Bible says forever and ever. The good news is, is that heaven is our eternal home. The good news is that we don't necessarily need to try to seek and find a Watopia on this earth because we know, in a sense, no such thing exists. You know, I shared earlier with you that, that the average family spends about $5,000 on vacation. And, you know, I know that some of you guys might think I'm cheap, but I call myself frugal. And so several years ago, I was contacted by um, an agency over the phone. It was just a telemarketer. And they told me that I could win a free cruise if I came and listened to their timeshare presentation. Uh-oh is what you're thinking, right? <laughs> So I go to this place I can't even remember the name of. It was in the, in the middle of nowhere in the state of Virginia, close to D.C. And I go to this resort there. It was a pretty nice resort. And, and there I was there for about two or three days about that. And there I sat and listened to their presentation. And, um, you know, I, I said, listen, um, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm here for the free cruise. <laughs> you can keep your timeshare. But in that free cruise, I got to go on a private excursion to a private island called Passion Island. And there, in a sense, it was almost like I had the whole island to myself. And I finally caught the bug of what all of us Americans think about for vacationing. I got to go to a place that I, I was in total, total peace of mind and tranquility. There I was walking on sand that seemed like that nobody ever walked on before because it was so pure. I looked in the ocean and I literally could see everything down all the way to the floor all-you-can-eat buffet, not a cloud in sight. It was blissful. So I finally realized why Americans spend so much money for vacationing. But I got to go for free. <laughs> Just about for free. But I share all that to say this, that the most extravagant vacation you could ever experience will not compare to what it's going to be like in the millennium and even into heaven. Jesus Christ will come again to establish his kingdom on earth. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.